Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, which begins in our church Bibles on page 871 and in your bulletin. Please stand if you are able as we read from the New Testament. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But everyone who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Please be seated. Someone once said, in the midst of life, we are in death. In the wake of um, the events in Pittsburgh last weekend, we have still much to grieve about the life of our nation and the fallenness of our world. And in the topic of death, I suppose, we can look with two minds upon it. One is uh, with grief. And the other is with great hope when it comes to our salvation in Jesus. So 
You may have heard that uh, Sally Lee's mum, Ruth, died this week after a long life. She went to be with the Lord, and uh, we hope, we look forward to seeing Ruth again. So I do take the opportunity to um, encourage Alan and Sally as you can. The funeral is next Saturday in uh, Philadelphia. And in the midst of death, we are in life. So also the news this week that to Chad Ridley and Chantel was born a new baby son, Christiana, brother to Chloe. Let's pray as we come to God's word together. Father, we thank you that you have given us your words, that they are to us, we are told, a fountain of life. Not that we will feel every moment their uh, vibrancy and their life, but they are life to us. They are their truth and the way in which you speak and feed us by your spirit through them brings us that life and leads us towards you. And so, Father, today as we hear your uh, written word, we pray that you might speak to our hearts by your spirit and affirm in us that life which you have made and are growing. In Christ's name, amen. Legendary in the stories of uh, young preachers is the account of the new pastor who was visiting the home of a parishioner. And uh, at one of his, the houses he was visiting, it seemed obvious to him that someone was at home, but no answer came to his repeated knocks. So he tried doors around the house. And uh, as he was leaving, he took out one of his business cards and wrote on it, Revelation 3.20, and uh, stuck it under the door. When the offering was counted the following Sunday, he found that his card had been returned and added to it. And the text that he'd written was this text under it, Genesis 3.10. Reaching it for his Bible to check the citation, he read his verse, and then he read the explanation that was also given from Genesis. Revelation 3.20 begins, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And Genesis 3.10 says, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid, for I was naked. <laughs> Which, uh, believe it or not, is the segue to my sermon in Luke 12 this morning. As you uh, read this passage... As you, you see it here, it's a, it's a story after all about a regular day in the life of Jesus dealing with the religious authorities, people who purported to be the life and hope of Israel, the authority of God to them, whom he was quite sharp with. And you see, as Luke records it, there's this pattern which is established in Luke's way of uh, establishing what happened, this pattern of hiding and fearing and then the strong temptation to remain silent. It should ring a bell or two for us as we read through it because that pattern at the start of the Bible is quite clear in Genesis 3. It is a human pattern in response to human shame and sin. It's what we do, right? So with Adam, it was hiding and it was fearing in his shame God's judgment and then remaining silent, not speaking when called for. That pattern that we saw with Adam in Eden is what human beings have lived with since. 
whether we're conscious of it or not. It's in our code. It's the way that we respond to uh, our own sin and our own separation from God, the way in which our fear interacts with our consciences, the way in which, uh, in response to God's law, we're tempted not to run towards God, but away from him and hide. So it's naturally what we do with our sin. And these are the ways in which we try to save ourselves from the shame which we're chained to, not knowing, not recognizing, forgetting the immense love of God to us in Jesus. So it was the Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer, who you may know, used to say this. This is one of the things that Francis Schaeffer used to say. God has created man as a real personal being, and man, that is human being, possesses a mannishness from which he can never escape. So, sitting here this morning, religious or irreligious, what Jesus addresses here is the curse of what has happened to you as a consequence of Eden. As a consequence of the breaking of the human race, it's the stuff that you live with, it's the stuff that you run to, it's the pattern that you find yourself repeating again and again. It's the stuff of every fallen human being's condition, of my condition and yours. And yet here too today, and Luke is clear about this too, you will find the God who called Adam out of shame and isolation coming to you in the person of Jesus, calling you to reveal yourself to him, to come out of hiding and to find escape from the curse only through him, only through Jesus. And that's not just happening once, that happens surely every day of our lives as we turn and depend on him. So very simply this morning, we're going to pick up where Alan left off last week at the end of chapter 11. We're going to make our way through these first 12 verses, not all of them, but most of them uh, in chapter 12. And these are the themes that we will pursue. Hiding, living in fear, and keeping silent. Again, very human ways of responding. So if you turn uh, to the text, you'll find it there again in the bulletin or in the church Bibles, or no doubt on your phone. So first of all, these first three verses and the topic of hiding. First question for you, what is a hypocrite? What is a hypocrite? We know when we uh, use that word, we suspect from our earliest days that it is not a compliment when we use it. After all, we don't typically go up to say to somebody with congratulation, oh my goodness, you've made it. You're a hypocrite, my friend. One of the great hypocrites. Of all the hypocrites I've known, you are surely the most hypocritical. <laughs> if you do say that, they probably will not win you friends. Now, why don't we say that? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? When we deal with a person like that, we understand that there's a social cost involved. And so what are we? Well, we're hypocritical because we think that, but we never say it. We don't say it also because we understand the word means someone who's playing a part. The original meaning in, in Greek is of somebody who's a stage actor, someone who puts on a front, someone pretending to be what they're not. And we know that that's not laudable, that's not a high human value, it's, it's fraudulent. But as Jesus describes the Pharisees and the scribes and the uh, religious leaders of his own day, he calls them hypocrites. And notice this, because he loved them, 
He told them what he thought they were. He told them what he thought their problem was. And what he's saying in calling them hypocrites is that they have a larger problem than simply endangering their social relationships. Jesus says they have a problem with God in the light of God's coming judgment. Nothing is covered up, what hypocrites do, right? That will not be revealed. Or hidden, which is where hypocrites live, that will not be made known. The hypocrite is someone who makes a practice of believing they can get away with appearing to be somebody on the outside that is a facade of who they really are on the inside. Hypocrisy is a human solution. It is Adam's band-aid for a hemorrhaging spiritual wound. For the Pharisees, it was the way they dealt with the dichotomy of knowing God's demands in the law and yet only able to find human solutions to the accusations of their own consciences. So they hid. So they pretended to be what they were not because they needed the approval of the people because they did not want to appear weak or hypocritical. They were hypocrites. It was their self-salvation strategy. And John says in his first letter this about hypocrites, right? This is the stuff of our own human lives and temptations. If we say we have no sin, we make God out to be a liar. That is, if we deny what is true of the inside of us to the person who knows the inside of us, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. We deny him and in the process we deceive him and we play act to others. So Jesus Knowing that tells the disciples here, following chapter 11, what is true and what is a very particular danger for us. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. It is their religious hypocrisy, he's saying. It's like yeast. It's even a tiny amount of it can spread to infect everything in the life of someone who's dealing with the demands of God. So what is the calling card of the hypocrite? Well, you can hear it in the words of the Pharisee in Luke 18. I thank thee, Lord, that I am not as other men are. I don't know about you in your biography. Maybe you have an opportunity to think about this. I distinctly remember that moment as a teenager growing up in a high Anglican church where I was pretty sure that I was not as other men are. And I'm pretty sure I felt it as a charismatic Baptist too, and I know there are days when I've been sovereignly assured of it as a Presbyterian minister. I thank thee, Lord, that I am not as other men. So the hypocrite deceives himself, really not having to deal with himself, nor with other people, nor with God by the words he protects himself with. George Whitfield diagnosed it this way, and I want you to hear these words because they are a challenge to this particular leaven of the Pharisees. And if you've spent much time in church growing up, they are a particular diagnosis of what is the temptation for us. As Adam and Eve, he wrote, hid themselves among the trees of the garden and sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness, so the poor sinner, when awakened, flies to his duties and his performances to hide himself away from God and goes to patch up a righteousness of his own. But before you can speak peace to your heart, 
you must be brought to see that God may damn you for the best prayer you ever brought up. Our religiousness or the ways in which we think we can make the grade with God is the problem. Beware the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, Jesus said, because the last thing that will ever enter the mind of the person who is hiding as he gives his best prayer or gives her biggest gift or reads the Bible reading or teaches the class or has the right theology, living a life that for all of that is hiding in full view from God and from others of the truth of who they are, of the truth of their need for God of the truth of their own sin, of the truth of their own desperate debt and their need to the cross of Christ. And because of it, because of the hypocrisy in us, we would say, shouldn't we say this every morning as we come repenting of our own sins and trusting in the promises of God, that we dare not be the kind of people who hide, hide from the mercy of God, but instead run to it. Psalm 139, you have searched me, O God, and you have known me. It's not a question. You have known me. We're dealing with someone who knows us and yet loves us even so. And what will God's judgment be like? Well, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. Nothing is hidden that will not be made known. You know, you probably have to have been living under a rock not to see the human version of this play out over the last year and particularly in the last couple of months, which is a kind of name it and shame it human solution to this. So we become judge, jury and executioner from a human point of view. But one day, Jesus says, everything that has been said and everything that has been done will be exposed and it will be judged rightly by the highest authority. And if you're hiding and reading this, much of this will sound like a threat. But I want you to see this for what it is. The judgment and the kindness of God are the same thing. The only difference is whether they appear in this life to you or in the next. What any hypocrite needs if they're to know the reality of the love of God and to know themselves is the very fact of their hiding and to confess it. Lord, I've been hiding from you, hiding from others, hiding from myself. Jesus, would you be the truth for me? Jesus, would you allow me to be myself as I am before you, a sinner saved by grace? And Christ says, whoever does what is true comes to the light, right? Not, not that you have to be perfect, not that you have to be clean, only that you come to the light, even hypocrites coming to the light. And as the light comes into you, as you reveal who you are to him and to others, you'll see that place where you've been hiding is the prison where you had lost yourself. So this is deeply human stuff. If you must hide, I think it's saying, hide in a community of fellow failures and sinners, for that's what the church is. So woe upon the church if we pretend to be anything else. We must hide in the love and truth of Jesus. Secondly, living in fear, verses 4 through 7. I suppose reading this, the connection with what follows next is not immediately obvious. 
<clears throat> Why does Jesus move from addressing hypocrites to addressing those who are tempted to fear people rather than God? I want to suggest to you it's because it's the same essential root idea. The person who pretends to be something they're not because they need to be seen by people in a particular way will also fear those people when the lie of their lives is exposed to them. This is not a name that will immediately come to your minds, but I was thinking this week about a man called James Whitey Bulger. He's been the uh, subject of two movies in recent years, and he died this week. Bulger was the crime boss from Boston who, after a tip-off from an FBI agent in the mid-90s, spent 16 years on the run from the federal authorities for racketeering and for serial murder. He was eventually caught outside an apartment building in Santa Monica, living with his girlfriend under an alias. And neighbours said when they met the two of them that they would smile and say hello, but you would never know anything more about them. They would never accept an invitation to dinner. They would never engage in small talk. They were all about the face and never about the person behind it. They kept entirely to themselves. And you can imagine the fear, can't you, that controlled James Bulger's life every day waking up, asking himself, is this the day that I'm going to be found out? Is this the day that they're going to catch me? Well, this week in prison at 89 years old, some of his old enemies from the mob finally did catch him. And for all of his temporary freedom, Bulger, who lived in fear, lived in the end without the fear that he really needed. Jesus said, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. I wonder how Whitey Bulger would have heard those words if somebody had said them to him. If those words had been said to him the day before he was caught, don't fear the feds, there's something worse. Or before the moment that he entered that room for the final time, not guessing that his last moments are about to come. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body because there's something worse. And yet Jesus in truth here and love, because again, Jesus is not a hypocrite. Jesus tells us the truth the way it is, says, I will warn you whom to fear. And he says this to those who are listening to him. Fear that judge who, if you don't pay heed to him, can lock you up and throw away the key forever. Fear that executioner who can hand you over to death, but also to something far worse. Now, understandably, perhaps, people get confused and upset about this. If God is good, they ask, why should Jesus tell us that we should fear God? If that's not puzzling enough, consider what Jesus then says next. When he gets through telling them, fear him, I tell you, he then tells them immediately that if they do as they should do in coming to the mercy of God, verse 7, they should not be afraid. Fear not. Fear him. Fear not. Why? Well, because you are of more value to God than many sparrows. And you might ask, how can both those things be true? How can God be a judge whom you should fear so much that you might never want to stand before him in the wrong way and yet also be a father who loves you so intensely? 
After all, the warning given here and the promise given are delivered to the same group of people about the same person by the same person. This was uh, C.S. Lewis's answer to this conundrum. What do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because I know he is good? Have they never been to the dentist? Here's my answer, and I think I've processed this with you some years ago. I grew up in a broken home, and all of our lives, I suppose, are about considering the truth of the gospel in the face of our own biography. I grew up in a broken home and really had no relationship to speak of with my natural father. And I arrived home one night past curfew uh, with my younger brother, and my stepfather was furious. He was livid. He was so angry with me, red in the face and boiling with rage. I think at that moment, if I had known this verse about those who can kill the body, it would have occurred to me. (laughs) And I went to bed, and I thought about what was happening, and through hot tears, I swore that I would leave the place of that man and I would never come back. But as I prayed, and I think as God worked on me through a couple of hours, and I thought about it, I realized for the first time, here was someone who loved me enough to get upset that I might not come home. My stepdad wasn't perfect, but that was real love. It wasn't what I wanted, but it's what I needed to hear. It was a proper fear that led to a deep assurance of love. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here about what love really is. Love isn't the sentimental interior of some Hallmark card. Love isn't a lot of what passes for religion and even Christianity in the West today. It's not God loves you like some cuddly bear. No, instead, God loves you like a lion, but not a tame lion. God loves you, and he needs you. He wants you earnestly to come to his love and not remain apart from him, hiding from him. There's no contradiction here, I think. If God is here, God must be God, and you must be you. If God loves you, he must warn you if he's loving And even if you only love yourself, you must heed that warning and run to safety. And so I think for those of us who are processing this, who've processed it perhaps every day, here is the truth of where we are, that we are safe within the arms of a lion. Someone who loves us, someone who has paid for us, someone who has ransomed us, someone who needs us to know the cost of what has been paid for us, and the truth of the environment, the spiritual truth that we live within, that he is the only rescue, that there is no religion, there is no sentimentality, there is no good work apart from him that can save us or keep us safe. It is only within his arms, the arms of that very person who Jesus tells us loves us and whom we should fear that we will be safe. So don't make your life, Jesus says, about what people think of you, because that's not safety. And don't make your life and your words and what you do about how people might approve of you, because that's not real approval, nor is it permanent. Live for the only person who can give you your life. And every other fear and rightful fear will find its proper place. 
And thirdly here, keeping silent, verses 8 through 12. Look at verse 8. It's among probably the most common thing that you will ever read in Luke. It's a phrase that's repeated again and again. It's what Jesus tended to say when he came to crowds and when he was spoke to speak to individuals. And it should be striking to us that Jesus puts it this way here. Again, I say to you, literally in Greek, I am telling you. I am telling you. It's not a kind of ecclesiastical, thus I say to you. Right? It's Jesus saying to you, I, Jesus, am telling you the truth. I am telling you, he says to his disciples. And this is the moment in the life of Christ which so resonated with Paul in 1 Timothy 6, where he speaks about Jesus who made, you might remember, the good confession before Pontius Pilate, where he spoke the truth, where he didn't hide from Pilate, when he knew that the truth that would either see him freed or the truth that would send him to the cross was the truth in answer to the question, are you a king? Pilate asks him that in John 18, are you a king then? And Jesus said, you said correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Jesus spoke up. Jesus testified. This was who Jesus was. This is what Messiah was to be. He wasn't Robert Powell, the quiet, unemotional Jesus of the 1970s made-for-TV movie. He wasn't Jesus meek and mild. He wasn't the silent lamb, at least not until right at the end. Jesus was constantly speaking up. That's what made him enemies. That's how the gospel was imparted to other people, that they heard it from his lips. It was the fact that he didn't keep silent that led the Sanhedrin to convict him in Luke 22. It was the fact that he spoke up that drew thousands and thousands to him to be healed and to be rescued. He testified to the truth. He spoke up. If you like, there was no hypocrisy in him. He lived this. You know, you could say the inside of God came outside in the person of his incarnate son. That's what the Bible teaches us, that he was fully God. He was the image of God, totally reliably God. Philip said to him, show us the Father. And he said, if I've been with you so long, you don't know who I am, Philip. There was no hiddenness. There was no contrast. There was no shadow. The person of God was shown in the person of his son without hypocrisy. He was going to fully do what we have failed and faltered in doing. He was going to be fully himself. And if you've ever gone through counseling, you will know that this is the key in many ways to repairing the human soul through the gospel. It is in becoming transparent and honest and vulnerable to who he is and thus to who you are in him. And this is how Jesus, the one true human being, showed himself as our pattern. He spoke up. I think this is a part of the gospel that we often overlook in terms of its reference to us. We see things uh, often so passively, and it's right that we should see them passively because we've received the righteousness of God passively, right? We haven't done anything to contribute to it. It's as if it were up in heaven. It has been something that has been done by God. We have not given anything to it. We have contributed, if you will, only our own sin. But as God works through us, he speaks out through us. 
He testifies as we open our mouths in concert with him. So Jesus, who loved God and you more than he loved the praise of men or feared that people would hurt them, who has shown himself to be precisely and entirely who he is, is our pattern. He is our pattern. He is, if you will, our kind of anti-hypocrite. He is the example to us which we live in the good of. Which leaves you and me, I think, with this challenge. How did you come to know the gospel? You know it because someone told it to you. You know, when I was in seminary, we had this favorite phrase, which I think somewhat strangely comforted us from um, France of Assisi, which has done the rounds. You probably heard it. Preach the gospel if you use words if necessary. Now, there is, there is truth to that, right, that the gospel needs to be shown in perhaps tangible, physical, practical ways before you ever speak a word. But if you never speak a word, people will not know the gospel. You have to testify to him. You have to speak about what God has done in your life. You have to share, don't you, some of the words of Jesus with people. And so it is, someone told it to you if you're a Christian. They may have just left a seed of a thought, but the Holy Spirit took that seed and they brought it to life in you. You may not even understand how that happened, but one day you came to the point where you said, Jesus, I believe you. Jesus, I receive you, right? You know the story of Jesus because someone loved you more than the fear of what you might say or think of them. I remember I met a, um, a Scottish girl on a flight a number of years ago, and she was um, telling me her story, actually, over several hours. And as we got to the end of it, uh, she told me that she'd wandered into a church in, um, in Scotland, uh, and she was actually the, the wife of a celebrity. And uh, she said that on the spot, she had heard the gospel, she'd heard about Jesus and responded to it there and then. And uh, I don't know, maybe um, I felt I needed to test her a little bit, but I said, you don't believe that stuff, do you? <laughs> You're not one of those Christians, are you? Needless to say, she wasn't very happy when she found out what I did for a living later. <laughs> but when you think about the person who shared the gospel with you, they were facing those same fears. Fearing what you might say, fearing what you might think, fearing that you would reject them. And they loved you more than the excuse of wanting to give you your space by keeping quiet, respecting your own personal universe. They loved you, believing that Jesus' words are true and that you will be rescued only by hearing them and responding to them. So let me leave you this, this challenge. I suppose it's a challenge to all of us, isn't it? What is hypocrisy? Well, in our context, isn't this hypocrisy? It's the sin of the Pharisees to know the truth, yet to keep it to yourself because you fear what other people might think of you. To be one thing on the inside, and that to your great benefit, and to be, appear to be something else on the outside. I was very struck by um, the biography of a man called David Gregory, who's the former NBC correspondent who says he, uh, as a Jewish man, was struck deeply by this, that every time he hung out with George W. Bush, with whom he was friendly, the president of the United States, who had presumably a lot else on his mind and a lot to lose by asking this question, would ask this question of David Gregory, 
every time he met him, how's your faith? Where are you with God? It's not a bad question. So try this. When people are running down Christians in the office, speak up, say this, actually, I'm one of them. When people are making fun of what the Bible says in school, speak up. Maybe just to one special friend, but say something. Say, actually, I think I believe that. And when people are disgusted at the claim that Jesus is the only way to God, tell them it's true. If you don't believe it, let's see what Jesus says in the Bible. And if you have no clue what to say, say this. Say what Simon, Simon Peter's brother Andrew said. Come and see. Come to the community group. Come and see. Come read the words of the Bible with me. Come and see. Come to church even on Sunday. Come and see. But I think this is the big challenge to us. If we're not to live simply within the security and the benefit of what Christ has done to us without fulfilling the reason that we've been given this, which is to live in the good of the gospel and to share it with others, we must speak up. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that each of us here struggle with unbelief, and if there's something more that we struggle with more than unbelief, it is fear. Fear of other people, fear of what people might think. And we can attest, Lord, with the truth of what we read in the Bible when it says that we have been given this treasure in jars of clay, given something hugely valuable in something so temporary and weak and frail. And yet, Lord, what a treasure it is that we've been given and how we have benefited from knowing you. Lord, you who have given us, who have laid up good works for us to do, I pray this week for each of us, Lord, that maybe on one day this week you would show us at a particular moment, nudging us by your Holy Spirit, this is it, say something, talk about me, own me, identify with me, speak well of me, even in the face of opposition. Lord, would you teach us to testify in Christ's name. Amen.